Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Love the cheering section. I want to break up the passing of the peace. That's good energy, right? So before um, I begin our, our time together this morning, I just want to take this opportunity to thank this community. Um, I can't believe that in the next week or so, my, the first half of my, my internship here at Vox is coming to a close. It went, it went by in a blink. It's un- I mean, we'll still be around, but I just can't believe how much time is moving. And uh, I'm so great, uh, gracious to be here with all of you this morning. So let's begin our time with a, just to ponder a question. Have you ever done or said something because you thought it's what you should do? Can you reflect on how it made you feel leading up to doing it, actually doing it, and then how you felt after you did it? Did you feel satisfied, like it was the right thing to do? Was guilt involved? Shame? A sense of obligation, perhaps? I know for me, when I tell myself I should do this or that, it seems more often than not an internal judgment or a sense of obligation. In my life now, they don't feel authentic when I recognize that I feel like I should do something. As a person who identifies as the reformer or number one on the Enneagram, and the Vox community is very versed in the Enneagram here, much more than I, but I know enough about the personality type that I identify with that shoulds, shoulds, are a big part of my daily interior dialogue. I should have done this. I shouldn't have said that. I should lose some weight. I should call my mother more often. And mom, I know you're watching. You know I love you. (laughs) I recall a time when I was pretty lost and spending some time with a wise teacher when he had heard one of my particularly self-judging diatribes. I was beating myself up pretty good with shoulds and should nots. And that person stopped me and he said, oh, you're shooting all over yourself. (laughs) I love that. I use that as often as I can. As a parent of four grown adults, or almost grown in the case of our son, and a former teenager myself, when teenagers are told what what they need to do or what they should do, they resist it even more. They are internally fighting for a sense of control and agency in their lives. When we feel obliged or forced to do something, we'll naturally fight against doing it, right? It is often never done willingly, but from other forces at play. Or another reason we will fall in line to do something is because many others are doing it. We have an innate need to belong, to be accepted, and to feel good about ourselves by our affiliation with those relationships and those associations. Richard Rohr, one of my spiritual teachers, he calls it our mythical membership. We define ourselves by what others around us are doing, and we often comply to be accepted. Let's reflect on a time when we did something because others were doing it. Did it feel authentic? I know for me it wasn't. I was just entering high school in the ninth grade, and I was coming from a small elementary school into a larger high school, and and I was like any high schooler, you want to have friends, you want to be liked, you want to be popular. And I recall early in the ninth grade, this group that I was associating with, 
started to verbally abuse a classmate because he struggled with his weight. And I remember feeling off about it. But there was something about it that kept me from opening my mouth. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but it was that need to belong. Or maybe it was the opposite of that. Maybe it was the fear of being rejected. And it didn't say anything. And Joseph, if you're watching now, I'm forever sorry about that. So today, in our second week of Advent, we continue in our time of waiting in the darkness. For what? For light. For Christ to come into our darkness and bring us light. The Christmas lights that don our houses and yards during this season remind us of the light that's coming out of the growing darkness. In today's scripture passage from Luke 3 that Hudson read for us, John the Baptist is down at the Jordan River baptizing the crowd. This is right before Jesus comes to be baptized and starts to spread that long-awaited light that we're waiting for now. So we begin in verses 7 and 8. John said to the crowds that come out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. That's a pretty direct message from John. He's calling them out. You brood of vipers. Not exactly a welcoming exchange, was it? If you're not familiar with the Bible translation by Eugene Peterson called The Message, I highly recommend it. Sometimes he offers a translation that helps us kind of grasp what we just read a little bit better. Let's try this version. When the crowds of people came out for baptism because it was the popular thing to do, John exploded, brood of snakes. He's still doing snakes. What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to deflect God's judgment? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as father. Being a child of Abraham is neither here nor there. Children of Abraham are a dime a dozen. These people seem to be coming around to be baptized, to be cleansed of their unworthiness and their unacceptability because perhaps they were shamed into it. Herd mentality takes over for them. The Jewish people in this time were used to many centuries of exile and return from God's judgment. So they're probably looking for that silver bullet, the one thing that will forever keep them from being exiled again. And why wouldn't they? In that time, if someone told them that being baptized in water, their sins would be forgiven and their acceptance in God's eyes would be assured, people would certainly be like, sign me up. No wonder there were crowds. This was messaging that they weren't used to. What is interesting here is that Luke writes that John calls them snakes and talks about getting water on their snake skins. We know that snakes shed their skin, anywhere from one to four times a year, depending on the species of snake. And if anybody's getting freaked out about snakes, it's not that bad. I think it was very clever of Luke to have John call them snakes, knowing full well that they can shed their skins. We'll come back to the importance of that in a bit. So he's insulted them, he's called them out, and they begin to panic. 
Here's verses 10 to 14. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what should we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. They were looking for direction. As you've heard me share before, more often than not, we act as human doings rather than human beings. We want to know that if we act and behave in a certain way, do a certain thing that we can expect a desired result. The people being baptized by John were looking for a surface action that could change who they were. But recall that John said, you have to change your life, not your skin. He was implying that it's not a surface thing like the metaphor of a snake skin or such as an action to do good that changes them. It's not about acting out certain behaviors. It's an embodiment of the desire to love ourselves love one another, and to be just and fair. But John also understood where they were and that they hadn't yet had ears to hear and understand what living and embodied love for oneself and one another was like. That hadn't been the Jews' lived experience at that time. So he meets them where they are. He has to start somewhere. He instructs them on what good ethical behavior looks like in referring to providing for those with coats and meals, collecting only appropriate and fair taxes, and never to take advantage of one or others for one's benefit. He is instructing them on doing the right behaviors. It starts right there. We have to clean the surface first before any deep cleansing can take place. Just like when we wash ourselves with water, we give ourselves a surface clean of our skin. Before I truly had Christ in my life, and that was for most of my adult life up to about the last decade, I always asked myself what I should do, as if just doing the action would help me to avoid the fate of God's wrath or to get me a ticket to heaven. It felt like a scorecard that both God and I were keeping, and I was getting a failing grade. Growing up in the Catholic faith, and this is not in the, uh, picking on the Catholics, but when, in my parochial school education, there was a strong emphasis on the Ten Commandments. They were drilled into us in religion class. At least for me, it never felt embodied. It felt like obligations. It felt forced. It was only on the surface, on my snakeskin, so to speak. Eight out of the Ten Commandments begin with, Thou shalt not dot, dot, dot. They didn't feel like an invitation to see my value along with my neighbors or to recognize God's gracious and unconditional love for us. So here we are, the beginning of week two of Advent, with growing anticipation of Christ coming into the human condition in the form of Jesus. Why is this a time of waiting, anticipation, and excitement? Because Christ changed the whole story. Christ showed us that relationship with God was not a reward and punishment system. 
he lived his life as an example of what knowing one's own value, the value of all others, and what living in union with our common creator looked like. There wasn't anything we could do to earn that love. So if there's nothing that we can do to earn that love, why follow Christ's example? If it's not out of a sense of obligation, what could it be? This brings us back to the text. In verses 16 and 17, Luke offers us this. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's a very poetic way of putting that out. But here our friend Eugene Peterson helps to reframe the passage this way. But John intervened. I'm baptizing you here in the river. The main character of this drama, to whom I'm a mere stagehand, will ignite the kingdom, life, a fire, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God, everything false he'll put out in the trash to be burned. Symbolically, being baptized in water is the outward sign of our commitment to follow Christ's example, an external washing, if you will. But John suggests a deeper cleansing from Christ that takes place from the inside out, that has nothing to do with our outer skin. This baptism is of the Holy Spirit and fire, symbolizing a purification of ourselves. Eugene Peterson speaks of placing everything true in its proper place and everything false to be put out in the trash. There is no speaking of discarding the whole me into the trash, but only what is false in me. What is true is kept and placed in its right order by Christ's cleansing within us. This brings us back to the importance of having snakeskin. You never thought you'd be, like to be compared to a snake, I'm sure. We can shed what truly isn't us while keeping what is true. Do you all remember the 1994 movie The Mask by Jim Carrey? I didn't particularly like the movie, but I, I, I didn't like Jim Carrey at the time, but I've grown to really like him, and he's a super deep guy. But very simply, Stanley Ipkiss was this bank clerk, and he gets transformed into this manic superhero when he wears this mysterious mask. He dons this mask, this snakeskin, and becomes something else from who he truly is. The mask helps him develop a persona, a new persona. Persona means actor or actress. It's where the word personality is derived from. So our personality, our personality is our actress or actor playing out on our life stage. Some of it is our true self, for sure. And other parts of our personality are false. We recall many times in Scripture when Jesus calls the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes hypocrites. The word is a Greek term, hypocrite, and it means a stage actor. He tells them that they're acting like something else besides who they truly are. 
This is what Jesus comes to offer us when he asks us to follow him. He says to examine ourselves, all that we take ourselves to be, and to shed the skin of what is false in our lives. This is that repentance he speaks about, this metanoia, which in Greek means to change your minds, or perhaps even more to the point, to change the direction that you're seeking for happiness, fulfillment, and joy in your life, to turn around. Thomas Keating, a leader in the contemplative Christian movement, he refers to them as our emotional programs for happiness that each of us has through our growth from childhood into adulthood. These programs for happiness, in some ways similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, are ingrained into the human condition, into the human ego, into our human personalities, which we come to believe is who we really are. And there are three basic needs that all humans have. The need for safety and security. The need for affection, esteem, and approval. And the need for power and control. As we grow, our sense of self takes on our culture's conditioning, our upbringing. Parents passed on belief systems, religious belief systems, good or not so good, or maybe none at all. Our sense of our value, whether better or less than, and is highly influenced by our education and what we imitate. Our egos, our personalities, our personas develop a way to see ourselves and our world that become like seeing with tinted glasses based upon our particular ideas or opinions, beliefs, our preferences, biases, and boy, do I have a lot of them, expectations, life experiences, and traumas. These tinted glasses can lead us to an over-attachment to one, some, or all of those programs. And the thing is, we don't even realize it. We're completely unaware that it's happened. These masks or snakeskins become us, or so we think so, just like Jim Carrey's character in the movie. Let's take a moment to think about these programs. I'm just making sure they're still on the screen. And think about how these programs run our lives. Look over the list and non-judgmentally observe yourself and reflect which ones are the influences that drive you to put on your mask. I am taken with how Keating refers to them as programs for happiness. They are like computer malware that messes with our operating system. Have any of you ever been taught that money is a scarce resource and that it needs to be protected, that your money has, is hard-earned and that you need to grow it, and that others are out to take it and you need to guard it? That's a sense of security. It's okay to have financial security, but can you have an inner taste where you feel like it's too much, where, where we're huddling? How about the need to be liked, respected, and loved? I have it. I wake up every day not trying to annoy people. 
But have we ever noticed embellishing something about ourselves to sound more accomplished or educated so others will see us in a good light? I have. That need for affection, esteem, and approval is normal. It's normal to want to be liked. But when we over-identify with that need, possibly because of a childhood incident, and that we all have our, our opportunities to go back and reflect and lovingly uncover them, Have any of us ever taken advantage of a situation or another person to get our way? Guilty again. But we all want a sense of empowerment and a sense of agency in our lives. That's normal. These are not meant to make us feel awkward if we have. All of us have on some level, and it's not our fault. We're unconsciously doing it. The over-identification with any of these programs for happiness creates a snakeskin on our true self that gets to be revealed, lovingly let go of, and released. No judgment. This is where the light of Christ keeps looking for a crack in our snakeskin to get in, kindly showing us, kindly showing us these masks and inviting us to a fuller life without need to keep up these facades. But how? Let's revisit once more the messages version of verses 16 and 17. But John intervened. I'm baptizing you here in the river. The main character in this drama to whom I'm a mere stagehand will ignite the kingdom life, a fire, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God and everything false he'll put out in the trash to be burned. What gets to be burned in the fire is what is not us to begin with. We're invited to examine ourselves without judgment and in the light of, huh, this personality, this mask does that. It's embellished so that I would confirm or affirm that people like me. I can let go of that. How much more fulfilling would life be if that program didn't run me? Christ's life offers us a way to see in the darkness. And the darkness is not foreboding or evil, but just out of our sight, like a dark closet, out of our conscious awareness. Isn't that so hopeful? And that is why the season of Advent is so meaningful. We are in this time of waiting because we all know that God loved us so much that he sent Christ into our lives, not to burn us up in the unquenchable fire, but to free us from the burdens of these programs for happiness that hinder who we really are. Christ's light comes into our individual darkness to turn the lights on inside us, to help us see what's worth keeping and what we need to put out in the trash because it's holding us back from being who we're truly meant to be. Once we let Christ in to do the work of cleaning our houses, the shoulds in our lives give way. They slowly get replaced by get-tos and wish-tos and desires-to. Our wish to be loving and present to the people in our lives become a natural byproduct of that internal house cleaning. We no longer feel obligated to do things. We are naturally compelled by the understanding that we are a wonderful house made in the likeness and image of God 
that sometimes needs a good cleaning. Amen.